let's take our let's take our Bible and turn to Acts chapter nine. Bible at Acts chapter nine, and we'll look at beginning at verse thirty-two today. <clears throat> You know, it's always a good reminder to be reminded of the resurrection of our Lord. And it doesn't have to be on Easter. In fact, I think every day of our life as Christ followers, as we reflect the gospel to ourselves, as we preach the gospel to ourselves, should have the resurrection in view. It is a lovely thing, I think, to behold when we see God's people worshiping together and raising their voices to the one who has set them free from sin. I was thinking this week that we serve a God who restores, revives, and, re- and re-energizes. And I don't know about you, but I need all three of those in my life from time to time. I need to be restored on occasion. I need to be revived, and I need to be re-energized. When we sin... We have a faithful God who will forgive us if we are indeed repentant. I think of King David. The Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. He was contrite of heart. He knew what it was like to humble himself before the Lord. And if you know the story of King David, the narrative of David, David committed adultery and committed murder and He realizes his sin, the Bible tells us in Psalm 51. David states something as he appeals to the character and the nature of God Almighty. I think that David knew something about the nature of God. King David wrote this in Psalm 51, verse 12. He said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And that's the Lord that we worship. That's the Lord that we serve. He is the Lord that will restore you your joy. And the joy is in Himself. This restoration is part of the topic I would like to focus on this morning in the sermon. I submit to you that The Lord desires each and every one of us to bring you to a place of satisfaction and joy in Him. To bring you to a place of joy and satisfaction in Him. Not the trappings of life. Not the ways of this world. But satisfaction in Him. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? For some of us here today, it might mean that there might have to be repentance. The sermon today will, take, will be taken from Acts chapter 9, verse 32 through 43. If I had to put a title to it, it would be called Healing and Restoration. Healing and Restoration, I'll talk about both of those today in the text. But I'll ask you, if you will, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I will read from verse 32 through 35, and then we will uh, read the rest in in closing of our sermon today. The Bible tells us in verse 32, Now as Peter 
Now, as Peter went here and there amongst them, he came down also to the saints who lived in Luda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Luda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Father, we ask you to bless this reading of your word to our heart and our mind. May we hear, Father, what you say to your people through your word. God, in unction with the Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray that you would illumine our heart and mind. Help us not only to be hearers of your word, but to be doers of it as well. Lord, I pray that today there may be somebody in here who needs to be healed or restored from a state of sin into rightful fellowship with Jesus. I pray through the duration of this sermon that your Holy Spirit would work throughout in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I do not know if I can restate this enough. In fact, I will probably say this to the degree where you would say, Pastor, I get it, I, I understand, but I cannot restate this enough. The book of Acts is a demonstration of the Lord using the apostles and the disciples and the early church to move the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the rest of the world. That is the Acts of the Apostles. That is the framework, that is the outline of the whole book itself, the Acts of the Apostles moving the gospel under the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus throughout the known world. And what we have seen so far is a demonstration of this outline unfolding to the reader and the worshiper. By the way, that's you, that's me. We are the reader, we are the worshiper. The last couple of weeks we have been in Acts we were given the narrative on Saul and his conversion. A well-known account in the Bible is Saul and his conversion. What a wonderful reminder this is for all of us in here of the deep-seated grace of our Lord. If you really think about it, if there ever was a demonstration of God giving salvation to the undeserving, it is this. Saul, on his way to persecute, on his way to eradicate Christ's followers from the face of the earth, has an encounter with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, and God turns his zeal towards himself and towards the church. Saul is saved on this road. He preached before the synagogue in Damascus. They sought to kill him. He escaped out of the city wall. He headed back to Jerusalem. He preached there too. He convinced some of the disciples there that he was authentic and had an authentic conversion. But there was also people there in Jerusalem who sought to kill him. They rushed him back to Tarsus and he began preaching there and around Cilicia as we find in Galatians. And Paul would take the, the gospel to, to Rome and to the rest of the world. And there is where we ended our discussion, our sermon on Saul. And we will pick that up later uh, when Saul's name will actually be called Paul from chapter 13 on into the rest of Acts. This is where Luke the evangelist, the writer of Acts, was inspired to pause the narrative. As Luke is moved by the Holy Spirit, he pauses the narrative of, of, of Saul, Paul, and he picks back up with the Apostle Peter. Remember, again, the framework is Acts 1-8. This is the framework throughout the book, and the episode today is going to set Peter 
It's going to set them up. It's going to move this towards the end of the earth by using a Gentile by the name of Cornelius in chapter 10. So this will set up the end of the earth discourse that we will, we will see. God moving his people to the ends of the earth. Now today's episode is a reminder as we sang this morning, because he lives, I can face tomorrow because Jesus is alive. He gives true healing and revives the wayward. So we pray for people all the time who profess Christ and for whatever reason they're wayward. They all haven't been in fellowship with the church or with, as it seems, the Lord for a while. And we don't, although we don't know their heart, it is up, I think, to the church to some degree to intercede and to pray that God would revive the wayward. Revive the wayward. A couple of things I want to bring out in this text this morning of healing and restoration. The first is that of healing. Healing brings forth praise. Healing brings forth praise. First, let me assure you this. God, on occasion, He does heal people physically. Amen? God does heal people on occasion from physical ailments. What I will be referring to mostly this morning is the healing of the spirit of an individual. And throughout this sermon, where God's ultimate healing would be bringing a person who is dead in their trespass in sin to newness of life in Him. In other words, the true healing of Jesus brings, what He brings is the eradication of the stain of sin, and Jesus brings the salvation. What Jesus has done has eradicated the stain of sin in our lives. But I want us to look at this verse as we look towards healing. The Bible tells us in verse 32, Peter went out among them in Jerusalem and, and towards Luda. He came down to the saints and it's pronounced Luda in the, uh, in, the, in the Hebrew text. Luda, or you might know it as Lud or Lod in the Hebrew. We find our attention back to the apostle Peter here. The last time that we read of, of Peter, he rebuked Simon the magician in chapter 8, if you remember that. He rebuked Simon because he was trying to buy the Holy Spirit, if you will. And Simon is rebuked by Peter. We spent some time walking through Saul's narrative and his conversion and his preparation and his preaching. And now we find ourselves back at the Apostle Peter and we take a bit of an intercession from Saul, Paul, and now we're... Now we're back to Peter and the narrative there. Like Saul went out preaching, so did Peter. Went out preaching, continuing to preach through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And he eventually comes proclaiming Jesus, the risen Messiah, to the people who lived in Luda. Now Luda might not be familiar with you, but if you were to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 8, you will find this city known as Lud or Lod, L-O-D. This city was known for its purple dyes, being that it was in coast to the, close to the coast, and so it dealt with purple dyes, and it is located about 30 miles northwest of Jerusalem to Joppa. That number is important, 30 to 35 miles. Remember that number. That is an important stretch of mileage. Regardless, there were some people in this region that needed some healing, and the healing would further give avenue to the spread of the gospel. Not that the miracle or the healing itself would be the means of salvation, but the healing would give an avenue for the spread of the good news, some 35 stretch of mileage. 
It is also evident that there were already some believers here in Luda, more than likely from the preaching of Peter, maybe even of Philip. There was already some people there, as we find in God's Word, there were some saints who lived there in Luda. The Bible tells us that. Amongst them was a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed and he was bedridden. Here we are introduced to this bedridden man by the name of Aeneas, which his name is actually an older Greek word. So the language of the day was this common coined Greek language, just the common language of the day. But Aeneas is an older Greek word which means praise. His name simply means praise. This praise was at first not attributed to the Lord God Almighty. His, this praise is not attributed to Jesus, but more than likely some Greek false god, probably the goddess of fertility or something of that. And we are not told whether Aeneas was one of the saints, but the beauty of this is even if he was a believer, or if he was not a believer, the beauty of this is the Lord is about to direct his praise of Aeneas to Jesus. He is about to redirect or direct his praise to Christ Jesus the Lord. And as you know, uh, the uh, evangelist Luke is the investigative reporter of the gospel of Luke, which means he meticulously often writes. And so in this case, Luke uh, meticulously writes in this account. He wants the reader, he wants the worshiper to know that this man was indeed paralytic. He was bedridden for eight years. He was not getting up. No amount of physical therapy was ever going to help him get up. There was nothing that was going to help this man get up. He was genuinely bedridden and paralytic. He's not getting up. But Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise, make your bed. And what did he do? Immediately he arose. Now that word is integral in the gospel accounts and integral in Acts. Immediately is a word. He responded immediately. I want you to notice that Peter did not say, I heal you in his own name. He simply says, Jesus Christ heals you. And there is an important element to remember in this case. They knew this name Jesus because he was preached amongst them. They knew the name Jesus because whether it was Peter or Philip who preached there, they knew the name, but there were others there who, who still did not believe yet. And I will submit to you, that is the same predicament that we find ourselves in today. All this span of years that has gone by, and we are in the same predicament. We find ourselves in the same predicament because people know of Jesus, but they do not know Him in a salvific way. They know of Jesus, but they do not know Him as Savior. See, I will submit to you, if you are sitting in this service today, listening to this sermon, contemplating these verses, and you are a believer... You're born again. You're of Christ. We desire people to know Jesus and not just to know about Jesus. We want to be more than just a fan of Jesus because he is more than just a good teacher. He's Lord. He was there at creation. 
He was there when the created order come to be, when the Lord threw the stars in heaven by his fingertips. God was there. And once Peter spoke these words, Jesus healed the man, he arose. In Jesus' name, he arose. Now, this miracle did not save the man, and it didn't save others. It's not the miracle that saved the man, but it gave an avenue to which the gospel could, could move upon and use the apostles and the acts of the apostles to get people's attention by the miracle and saying that what they are preaching must be true of Jesus Messiah. The miracle, at this time in biblical history, authenticated the claims of Christ as risen Lord. So the miracle didn't make people believe, but it gave them an avenue as to which to hear the good news. The Bible tells us in verse 35 that all the residents of Luda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Let's say that together. And they turned to the Lord. Luda and Sharon are mentioned for a purpose. As I mentioned earlier, there is about a 30-mile stretch between the two places. So 30 to 35 miles between Luda and Sharon or near Joppa, there were folks who come to know the Lord. They didn't have email back then. They didn't have text messages. They didn't, didn't have a way of sending video. This is word of mouth that God is doing a work. The Lord is doing a work here. There's a miracle that has happened. Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, is, is, is who He said He, who he, said he, he was. And people were turning to the Lord. Again, it's not that they're saved by the miracle. They are saved by the measure of faith that they are given by Jesus. The miracle helped to strengthen that faith. You know, many times we associate the healing with physical healing. An act of being healed from an ailment, such as cancer or, or something that is, you know, a, a terminal illness maybe. We have a prayer list, and I noticed today it said over at the bottom. A prayer list, front and back. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't have a prayer list that is reflective of both sides. We have a list full of people who have ailments, who are suffering or in need of prayer, in need of healing. Can I challenge each and every one of us on this prayer list? Maybe this could be a discipline for all of us. Maybe this could be a discipline for every single one of us in here. God is a God that can indeed heal. But maybe this is something that, that we can do in conjunction when praying for the illnesses and the sickness. Begin to ask over each individual, how are they spiritually? Yeah, they're sick. How's their walk with the Lord? And you may already know that, and that's great. How is this illness going to strengthen their faith? How are they going to suffer through this illness and glorify God at the same time? I think that is a worth, worthwhile endeavor, don't you? And by the way, we call those kingdom prayers. Praying over the spiritual vitality and health, even on our sick list. How is their walk with the Lord? The University of Chicago Chronicle conducted a survey a few years back on the number of doctors who believed in God. Just a few years back, the number of physicians who believed in God. And their findings were that 76% of physicians believe in God. 76. The other believes in some natural 
means of answering even things that they can't answer. But there it is an undeniable, inescapable link between a patient's speed in recovery when prayer is active. There is a connection of speedy recovery and prayer. Prayer and healing go hand in hand. So let's move to the spiritual healing. Maybe for us this morning, we need some healing. Maybe we are caught in the past and maybe there's something that is just dragging us down and the Lord has calling us out of that and not to revel in the past but to move on. Maybe there's unforgiveness. Maybe there is, maybe there is something that you're struggling with. I'm, I'm not talking about the illness, a bad leg or a severe illness. I'm not talking about those things. And yes, we need to pray for healing from those people. Yes, we do. But are we growing in Christ? Maybe you need a healing from the burden of sin. Maybe something has a grip on you. I mean, it could be a number of things. Uh, unforgiveness. It could be maybe pornography. I mean, it could be a ton of things. And as a believer, you know that that thing has a hook in you. As a believer in Christ, you know you need freedom from that sin. And yes, even Believers, the hooks of sin or a vice can dig themselves in. But I want you to listen to me. Believer, listen, you have been freed from the grips of sin. And may I say, as easy as this is for me to say, as easy as it is for you to give it to Jesus now. Just as Peter said to Aeneas, you are healed in the name of Jesus, you have been freed from, from sin, you have been freed and forgiven from sin. And before we move on to our second point, I want to just navigate around Romans chapter 6. I want you to listen to this. Listen to these words. Rejoice and be free, okay? Rejoice and be free from that sin. Romans 6 verse 17 says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, means you're not a slave to sin anymore. Once a slave to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. As a child of God in Christ we are not chained to sin any longer but we are shackled as a servant to righteousness. God has called us out of that. God wants to direct or redirect your praise back to Him. And maybe that means laying something on the altar, giving it to the Lord, and saying, I'm done. I've got victory in Jesus. I'm done. I'm free in Christ's name. Secondly, as we move through the text, we sang about this this morning, because He lives, we live. We can say, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. You can go on and on. Because Christ lives, we live as well as freed men and women in Christ. We have freedom in Jesus. There was in Joppa a disciple by the name of Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. 
Here is where the cutscene would occur. Okay, so if you were watching a movie, this would be where your cutscene would be. Uh, a pause in the action, of course. A cutscene cuts away. We cut away from Peter and Aeneas and the marvelous work that was being done there as people were turning to the Lord and we pick up in Joppa. And here is a female disciple by the name of Tabitha. Her name is translated Tabitha in Greek and Aramaic. It is Dorcas in the Greek. So Tabitha in the Greek and Aramaic and Dorcas in the Greek. Both of these translations of her name means gazelle. This denotes a name of beauty. I want you to remember her Hebrew name, Tabitha or Tabitha. Remember her Hebrew name because that will become vitally important in the narrative that follows. The Bible says of Tabitha, in those days she became ill and she died. They washed her and laid her in the upper room. Now it was customary to prepare a body for burial, and this is not out of the ordinary. And plus, for Luke the evangelist, like he demonstrated that the man was paralyzed, not getting up, Luke goes into detail that she was indeed dead. She wasn't simply sleeping. She wasn't in some state of coma. She wasn't going to roll over and get up. She was not in some type of swooning state. No, she had genuinely passed away and they were mourning over her. Now, there are similar uh, narratives in Scripture. I'm going to give you a few, few of those where people were brought back from the dead or resuscitated. They're resuscitated so that uh, they're brought back to life. Resuscitation will mean that they will die a later time in life. There's only been one who was resurrected, the Lord Jesus. In Scripture, we find Elijah raising the son of the widow in 1 Kings 17, verse 17 through 24. We find the son of the Shunammite in 2 Kings 4, verse 32 through 37. We see the raising of the widow's son in Luke 7, verse 11 through 17. Jesus raising the daughter of Jairus in Luke chapter 8, 49 through 56. And then when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, beginning in John 11, verse 1 through... And all of these are a demonstration, an example of people who were raised again by the prophet or by Jesus himself who would go on to die another day. And the same exists here for Tabitha. The Bible tells us since Luda was near Joppa, the disciples hearing Peter was there, they sent two men to him urging, saying, please come to us without delay. Kind of sounds a little bit as they sent away for Jesus to come to Lazarus. And Peter rose and he went to them. And when he arrived, they were in the upper room. And so they took them to the upper room. And the widows were standing around beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Now, there was a need to get to the Apostle Peter. And then they knew the name of Jesus. They knew what Christ had done. And they, they knew Jesus was working through the Apostles and through Peter and that he might be able to help resuscitate or bring back uh, Tabitha to them. They may have heard how Jesus rose up Lazarus or the other accounts in Scripture of the holy man or the prophet, prophet raising from the dead or how even Jesus himself 
rose from the dead or was resurrected. I would also note that in this text, it takes a tremendous amount of faith. Tremendous amount of faith on behalf of the disciples in Joppa. Because as Luke tells us, Tabitha was clearly passed on. There was no life in her. And yet they had faith enough that the Lord could perform a miracle through through Peter. They don't know what it's going to be, but we just trust in God. Tremendous amount of faith, I think, that took for them to send for Peter. Now the widows were standing around mourning over Tabitha, and they were remembering, as the Bible says, that she was full of good works and acts of charity, and they held in her hands these acts of good works and charities through the clothing and the tunics that she had made, and they remembered her good works, and they were weeping. But here's where I sense a bit of sarcasm here, as it is said of the Apostle Peter. They're around mourning, and they're rightfully mourning. You know, they lost a, a friend, a dear saint in the Lord, and they were mourning. And I sense a bit of sarcasm here on behalf of the Apostle Peter, because verse 40 says, And he put them outside, and he knelt down and he prayed, Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise, and she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. So we would say there, what a miracle. Praise the Lord. I don't know anybody who's ever raised anybody from the dead, do you? Only through these apostles do we see it, through the apostolic work. What a miracle. God has answered their prayer. They've had faith. She is alive. She's set up in her bed. But as I looked at this verse, I said, well, they called her Dorcas in the Greek. That was what they called her. And as I'm reading this, I'm like, well, why didn't he call, why didn't he use that name? Why did he call out to her as Tabitha instead? Why did he use that name? Which would have been her name in Hebrew or Aramaic. I want you to think back with me to the earthly ministry of Jesus. We have navigated there through the duration of this sermon a little bit, but I want to direct your mind specifically to Mark chapter 5 when Jesus brings back from the dead the daughter of Jairus. The beginning of this chapter, Darius or Jairus comes to Jesus. He's a worship, considered a worship leader in the synagogue. He comes to Jesus. His daughter's about to die, and he implores of Jesus, come so that my daughter would be healed. She's on her deathbed. We need you. And on their way, Jesus is interrupted. The woman with the issue of blood reaches and touches the hem of the Lord Jesus' garment. He's sidetracked. There's a servant from the house of Jairus who comes and finds Jesus and says, or, or Jairus says, your daughter is, has passed on. Fast forward to Mark chapter 5, verse 41, and Jesus is in the house of Jairus. He takes her by the hand and he calls out to her. He says, Talitha kumi. Talitha kumi. Which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Now, you might not find a similarity between Tabitha and Talitha today. But it is just one letter off from Tabitha arise. In Peter's account, it is, it is Tabitha. In Jesus' account, it is Talitha arise. In the Aramaic, using this phonetically sounding word together, so close to the words spoken by Jesus, 
And the raising of Jairus' daughter would give immediately, uh, immediate attention and draw back to Jesus being who brought this young girl brought back to life. Just one consonant off. Now, you might be sitting there and you might say, well, um, coincidence. And you might say, well, um, no big deal. But the Hebrew and the Greek language is at some points vastly different from the English. And a lot of times there is interplay. There is play on words to make a point. And the goal here of using Tabitha in conjunction so closely tied to Talitha is to ultimately point back to the resurrection of Jesus, the healing through Christ. The Bible says in verse 41, And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive, and he became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. There it is again, many turned to the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So they heard the preaching of Philip. They heard the preaching of Peter. And, and maybe even caught wind of the, uh, the preaching from Saul. And now they saw a miracle. And the Bible says in verse 42, And many believed on the Lord. They saw this miracle and they believed. Again, Jesus lives so that we can have eternal life and have eternal life in Him. And I cannot help but to think how this narrative is so symbolic of the act of salvation itself. And you might say, preacher, what do you mean? We are people without Christ who would be dead in our trespasses and sins. Without Christ, we are dead in our sins. Not sick, but dead. And I cannot think, help but to think of this interaction with Tabitha. And I cannot help but to think in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 begins in verse 1. It says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. In which you once walked, following the course of this world... We would call that, we were like dead people walking, dead men walking. Following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, which we all were outside of Christ and are, if we're outside of Christ, sons of disobedience at any time, expecting the wrath of a holy and righteous God unless we repent. Verse 3 in Ephesians 2 amongst who we all once lived. We all once lived. You weren't born in this world a follower of Jesus. We followed the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of our body and our mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. There again, expecting the wrath of God at any moment, like the rest of mankind. Now, how does this compare? Well, I thought to myself as Tabitha laid there lifeless and unresponsive, so were we to the things of God in our sin. We lay there unresponsive. We lay lifeless. We lay with no ability to change ourselves. We had no way of knowing the things of God. We had no way of redeeming ourselves. We lay there lifeless, spiritually speaking, like Tabitha lay there physically dead. 
We were not sick. We were dead. And we lay lifeless. But if you continue in Ephesians 2, you get to what I like to call a gospel conjunction. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Him. It is while we were in our sins that God demonstrated His love to us, and that while we were yet sinners, He died for us. Even while we were dead, made us alive. By grace you have been saved. And not only that, He has raised us up. Give us resurrection. Raised us up and has seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but that ought to make a Baptist shout. Just as Peter called out to Tabitha to rise, the Lord has called us to come alive and, in Him and, and to live eternally. Again, maybe you need healing, as I mentioned earlier, from the burden of sin. Maybe some sin has got a grasp on you. And as a believer in, in Christ Jesus, you know that you need freedom from that sin today. For the child of God, I want you to to understand that you have been freed from the grips of this sin. You don't have to live in it. And again, as easy it is to say it is to give to Him, give it to Jesus. And just as Peter said to Aeneas that you are healed in the name of Jesus, you have been freed and have been given freedom from that sin. And just as Peter had called out to Tabitha to rise, the Lord Jesus called us to come alive and to live in Him. And maybe for some of us here today, the Lord Jesus is calling you to finally and ultimately trust in Him for your salvation or we be children of disobedience ready for the wrath of God. Maybe today, finally and ultimately, trust in Jesus, trust in Him for salvation, repent and be born again. See, Christ died on the cruel cross. We're about to celebrate and remember the the Lord's sacrifice around the communion. He died on a cruel cross, rose again, so that we might live and escape the judgment and wrath of God and forever give Him the glory for what He has done. But maybe for you, there needs to be repentance. You must repent and trust in Jesus Today, No simpler message exists in the gospel text. Let's pray.